Hello, everyone. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster. It's always a delight to be with you. We're in the last week of our spring study, the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, David, the early years. And I'm wondering if any of you read through this last chapter and thought, well, it's a study of David, but where is he? This whole chapter is about Saul, and we're searching for David, and he's not in it. Let me just give you a little hint here. The writer of the book of 1 Samuel has intentionally written the book with these two men, David and Saul, with their lives running parallel to one another. And we see their sort of overlapping kingship, their, their, their back-to-back kingship. The writer does that in this book because through the entire book, he wants us to compare and contrast these two men. He's always putting them side by side so we can learn from one and learn from the other. And even though we don't have David's activity in this chapter, we still have an opportunity to compare and contrast here. And what we see real quickly, they're alike. They've both been anointed king. And they're alike in that neither man is perfect. Neither one is flawless and without sin, but one man will see him grow in remorse and repentance and trust and obedience. And as a result of that growth, there will be goodness and wholeness and flourishing for him and the people around him. That's David. And God would describe David as the one who has um, a man after God's own heart. That's how David always appears here. But Saul, he's something else. Instead of being transformed and growing in trust and obedience, we see Saul disintegrate. We see Saul with all these God-given talents and abilities and energies. We see those energies just spin out of control. He doesn't move towards wholeness and flourishing and well-being. All along the way, Saul had the same opportunities to repent and to seek God, but he didn't. And his regular disobedience has pretty significant consequences. In Saul's life, as it parallels David's life, we are always taught from the negative. Basically, we would paraphrase this, don't be a Saul. That's why he's here, for us to learn from the negative. Chapter 31 is going to show us explicitly the consequences that come from a divided heart. And the consequences are pretty tragic. I know most of you have already read this chapter. You've probably noticed it's pretty bleak. From beginning to end, it's death, tragedy, despair, and destruction. That's how we could summarize this uh, chapter. So I want to tell you as a teacher who's making a plan to stand in front of you and hold your attention for 30 or 40 minutes, I kind of was looking for a moment in here for a little brevity, maybe a chance to share a little joke or a little lightness or bring a cute story. And I'm just warning you, there's no place in this chapter for that. There's absolutely nothing I can do with that. So before we sink down into all this death and misery, I want to bring a little levity, a little humor to this topic of God desiring our whole heart. I'm going to let a comedian named Jason Earle make you laugh for just a minute here. So watch this clip with me. This is pretty cool, church. They got a nice children's area. We didn't have any of that going up. We didn't have children's church. All we had was a two-minute story in the middle of the service. Imagine hearing this story as a four-year-old. My granddad would get up and say, good morning, little children. (laughs) 
your brother and your sister's heart. After all, he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> Okay, I'm real glad to hear you laughing, because that's your only light moment for the next 30 minutes, all right? It's all gloom and doom from here on out. Um, we're going to laugh a little bit about God wanting your heart, and now we're going to seriously look at the consequences of a man who doesn't give God his heart. You know, back in chapter 16, when God was choosing and anointing David to be the next king, he said, man looks on the outward appearance but God looks on the heart. And clearly that doesn't imply that God is looking at the physical organ with its chambers and its valves in our bodies. Now, in the ancient world, the idea of the heart meant something different. In the ancient world, the heart was considered the source of all your affections, your desires, your devotions, your commitments. The heart was considered the place of volition, meaning all your choices and decisions came from what you desired in your heart. And so that's what God is talking about. A heart for God suggests a heart that is in harmony with the Lord, a heart that desires what God desires, that values what God values. And we have a God who tells us he can actually change our hearts. He can take our self-centered, hardened hearts of stone and he can soften them and he can bend them according to his will and his way. He can change our hearts. And God is continually willing to do that work in our heart when we cooperate with him. Only when we cooperate with him. We have a God who refuses to barge in where he is uninvited. That's the story of God from the beginning. So our disobedience, our disharmony, our disunity, diminishing the value of the things that are important to God, that's like walling off sections of our heart and telling God, you are not welcome here. And God does not go where he is not welcome. He is willing to enter our hearts. He is willing to change and transform us when we invite him. But when we tell God he's not welcome, he stays out. And that's what we see in the life of Saul. He is regularly building these walls in his heart and in his life and keeping God out. We began in chapter 11 when Saul was first called out and anointed to be the king of Israel. And we remarked in that chapter that God's grace was all over Saul's life, graciously calling him, graciously equipping him, graciously enabling him. And we get to watch and see how Saul responds to God's gracious activity. He doesn't respond well. By chapter 13, Saul proceeds to violate the priesthood and disobey the prophet 
by offering those unlawful sacrifices that he wasn't supposed to do. By chapter 15, he's disobeying direct instructions from God when he lets this enemy king um, survive a battle and he takes unlawful spoil that God had told him not to do. By chapter 22, in vengeance, he, he orders that 85 priests serving in the temple of God would be executed. And then he orders that all the innocent citizens in the city of Nob be murdered. You can just see his energy is spinning out of control, not moving towards wholeness, goodness, and flourish, but moving towards damage. By chapter 28, God has stopped communicating directly with Saul. Fellowship between God and Saul is severed. And then Saul sinks perhaps to his lowest because he can't get the information he wants from God. He goes to someone who's dabbling in the dark arts. And he goes to see that medium, that woman involved in witchcraft. And he seeks a message there. And we know that God overrode the, the dark arts and the dark powers there. And God brought one last message to Saul from the prophet Samuel. This is from chapter 28. Sam, Samuel tells Saul, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. Tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Okay, all that has happened, and that takes us to where we are at the beginning of chapter 31 right now. So the Philistines, we know they're gathered with their numerous army and all their chariots and their weaponry. They're gathered in Shunem, waiting for this battle with Israel. The Israelites, they are also gathered in Jezreel, and while Excuse me, while Saul and Israel prepare to enter that battle, remember, David has been seeking refuge among the Philistines, and he is traveling along with them. While Saul is ready to go into the battle, God providentially takes David out of the battle. David finds another battle down south where he is actually defending his people, the Israelites, it's a picture of God's grace for David because that battle goes well. There's victory, there's spoil, there's celebrating. All God's power, God's favor, God's grace over David and his leadership. But that's happening down in the south. And up north with Saul, things go very differently. Let's read about this battle. This is 1 Samuel chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Okay, in case you didn't grasp all those deaths, that last little verse there is a summary. Sums up like this, dead, 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 all are dead. 
This is the consequence for Saul's uh, divided heart. So much death. It's a decisive victory for the Philistines. Um, The men of Israel who don't die in that battle that they have in the Jezreel Valley, they're fleeing. They're running for their lives. They're running up the hillside of Mount Gilboa. And as they're running on that hillside, they're all killed. No one is left living. The Philistines continue their pursuit, and on the hillside, they find the royal family, Saul's three sons. Each one is killed, and then the archers are able to mortally wound King Saul. Saul begs his armor bearer to kill him. He's clearly concerned for his own dignity and honor here. That really is understandable because there was this Near Eastern custom in warfare when you had a wounded enemy or a mortally wounded enemy, there was a pretty good chance they were going to torture you and mutilate you. That was the way warfare went then. And you know, you may remember David even practiced this. There was one instance where David used... um, as evidence that he had won a battle, he brought mutilated body parts of enemy men and, and presented them to Saul. That was how warfare went in those days. So I think the emotion, the pervasive emotion for Saul right now is despair and fear and dread about what is going to happen to him. The environment all around him is complete death. Everyone he cares about has died in this moment. But I think we also see something else in Saul here. I think we see one last episode of faithlessness in Saul. I think what Saul is doing here with this plan to take his own life is showing that he will not trust God's control. He will not trust God's activity, even related to his own death. Now, this is just my opinion, and I am only talking about Saul. I'm not talking about anybody else, um, any other experience of suicide. I think Saul is taking control rather than letting God have control here. I think as he lived, so he died and that guided his decision to fall on his own sword here, choosing independence from God. And then Saul, as the leader, he has set the pattern, and his armor bearer follows his example and does the exact same thing. One by one, they all fall. Six verses here give us a picture of total destruction of the dynasty that was Saul and his family. It's total devastation, not just to Saul's family, but to all of Israel. When David would learn about this, he would would say of this battle, your glory, O Lord, lays slain on the heights. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. It began with all God's grace and it just disintegrated. Within 24 hours, Samuel's prophetic words have all come true. And as you read these, it seems really harsh and severe, doesn't it? It's kind of hard to read about such death and destruction. But what we have to remember, it's been 40 years 40 years where Saul has shown a consistent and steady pattern of closing off his heart towards God. And it's those 40 years of refusing God that led to the grieving and eventual removal of the Holy Spirit from Saul. 
It led to God refusing to hear Saul's requests and communicate with him, and now it leads to God's righteous judgment over Saul. That is what's happening. That's the consequence of his divided heart. Saul has sealed his own condemnation for 40 years by refusing to seek God, obey God, honor God, by refusing to repent and turn back to God and give up on his own controlling selfish ways. And that also means for 40 years, God has been merciful. God has been patient. God has been slow to anger and gracious with Saul. But we never see Saul respond to the grace of God with repentance or obedience. I'll give you a few reminders here. We've seen Saul frustrated and disappointed that there would be consequences, but not repentant. We've seen Saul stressed and anxious when Samuel turned away from him, but not obedient. We've even seen him plead multiple times, oh, David, my son, you've done nothing wrong. I'll stop chasing after you. But then he doesn't change his behavior, and he keeps chasing after David. What we never hear Saul say is, I am a sinner, and I've sinned against a gracious God. And what we never see Saul do is change his behavior in repentance. God's activity seems harsh and severe here, but God's activity is always consistent with God's character. And we know that God's character is this unique blending of mercy and justice. He is a holy God, and that means he will exact justice. Isaiah 30, verse 18 is on your verse sheet. I think it shows us this mercy and justice of God's character. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. God has been merciful and gracious for 40 years, and Saul has refused to listen to God, and so God has stopped speaking to Saul. Quite literally, God is giving Saul exactly what Saul wanted. He wanted complete independence from God, and that's what God is giving him. Now look what happens next in verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were all dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in their cities. Okay, so these are the non-fighting men, the Israelites in the north who weren't in the battle in the Jezreel Valley. They live in the north. They live in these, this area on your map. It's kind of called the Transjordan area. This would be the tribes of Issachar and Manassas. So the non-fighting men look out and they see all the destruction. They see the dead men everywhere. They recognize no king, no royal family, no military protection, no security for Israel. And they also know the Philistines are out there and the Philistines want their land. 
You know, it's interesting because the, the military and the political goals that the Philistines have for Israel right now are the same military and political goals that cause war and fighting in the world today. The Philistines want to divide the nation of Israel geographically because that will weaken them. That's happening in our world today. Um, they want to control the valuable trade route that runs through northern Israel because it would be economic advantage to them. That's happening in our world today. And so in great fear and distress, these Israelites look out at all of those realities and they abandon their land like war refugees. And the Philistines immediately come in. Philistines are occupying the promised land of God. It's a tragic picture. You know, we can visualize this today. Think of Ukraine. Think of these people desperately fleeing and trying to get across the borders, carrying just the, the belongings they can carry with them, just trying to get away from an enemy oppressor. That's the destructive reality that we're experiencing in Israel. Israelites have become war refugees. It's a complete destruction of the dynasty that was Saul and his family, and they're all consequences for Saul's divided heart. Fear, despair, death, dread. All experienced by people who were supposed to live under the protection of a good and mighty king. All that Saul was supposed to accomplish that would lead to Israel's flourishing has not happened here. And Samuel said, it's because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. It's all because you didn't obey. God would give Israel into the hands of the Philistines because Saul didn't obey. So what do we learn from this? Modern times, we learn obedience is important. How do we respond to the grace of God in our lives? We respond with obedience. That was the one thing that was missing from Saul. God's character has not changed. He is still just, and he is also still merciful and slow to anger. He is still desiring that every disobedient child would stop sinning and turn back to him in obedience. Now, I do want to point out that during this time, they lived under the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant, the agreement that God made with them is, if you are obedient, I will bless you. You will have personal, uh, national, and military success if you are obedient. That was the agreement God made with them at that time. We don't live under the Mosaic Covenant. We live under the Covenant of Grace. And the covenant grace is God in his generosity sent his son to pay the price for our sin. And we have graciously received forgiveness and salvation through Jesus. So the way we respond to the grace of God today is still obedience. Give him our lives and our choices. Give him obedient actions. But it's out of gratitude for grace. Our obedience isn't to earn God's favor. Our obedience isn't to earn success. Our obedience is simply a response of gratitude for his grace in our lives. You know, just like Saul, when we choose disobedience, it's sort of like we're back behind a wall. Oh, I can do this. God won't see. God isn't here. God isn't present. And we start believing that lie, and then that lie starts forming and shaping our heart. 
But when we obey, we're actually acknowledging the truth. God is here. God is present. God does see. And the reality of living in the presence of God, that starts forming and transforming our hearts. Obedience is one of the ways we experience the presence of God and invite God to keep working in our hearts. He reshapes our hearts through our obedience. Okay, let's look at verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off Saul's head, and they stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. As if all the death and defeat were not enough, now we get an episode of great dishonor dishonor for Israel, for Saul, and for God. Normally, when a royal leader was injured or killed in battle, his men would carry him away from the battle and honorably bury him. But we have to remember there are no men left to carry their bodies away. That's not possible for them. To be unburied was a mark of disgrace among all the cultures, but particularly it was disgraceful among the Israelites. Back in Deuteronomy, when God had told them there will be curses for your disobedience, one of the curses was your dead body will lay exposed, vulnerable and exposed to the elements and the animals. It was a huge disgrace to be an unburied body, to not be honorably buried. And the one thing that Saul had really tried to take control of, his body being mutilated and abused, he doesn't even control that. The enemy comes in. The first thing they do, they cut off his head. They also cut off his son's heads. And you have to know uh, there was some maybe victorious boasting here as they felt like they were avenging Goliath whose head David had cut off. Then they strip off Saul's armor. Um, That head becomes kind of a trophy, a war prize. And then they strip off the armor, and now the armor becomes a trophy and a war prize. That leaves Saul's body naked and exposed and further disgraced. And then the ultimate mockery is a mockery to God and the people of God. The Philistines announce announce their victory by leading this sort of prophet procession, a victory parade with these trophies, the army and the heads leading the way, and they take that into their city, and they go to the temples of the false gods, and they present those trophies there like offerings to their idols. It's a huge mockery of God. Saul's armor, we are told, goes to the temple of Ashtaroth. She was their goddess of love and war. So the armor of a defeated king would be an appropriate offering for her. Chronicles tells us that Saul's head was actually taken to the temple of Dagon. Uh, Dagon was a god of thunder and rain. Dagon was presumably the father of Baal. All right, God's people who are supposed to display the glory of God among the world, now their body parts are being used to dishonor God and to worship 
idols. It is the ultimate mockery. Again, we can understand David's words. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on the heights. And last, they take the naked, decapitated bodies of Saul and his sons, and they impale them on the wall of the city of Bethshan. Uh, Bethshan, you can see it on your maps. It's a city in the north, just right near the edge of the Jordan River. Bethshan was discovered, the ancient city, and actually in the 1920s, they started excavating it. We've got some slides here that we're going to show you. Um, you can easily see the layout of the city and you know what looks like a track there. That would be the wall around the city where probably at the main entrance, the bodies of these royal family members would have been displaying for everyone to see. We've got a few other slides here. Here's an interesting thing. Um, when archaeologists discover an ancient city and they begin digging, they find layers of civilization because as each city is conquered and destroyed, maybe burned and flattened, the next um, invader comes in and builds a city on top of it. And when they started excavating here at Bethshan, they found nine layers of civilization. The fifth layer, architecturally, is in keeping with the time frame of these events. And uh, remarkably, in that fifth layer of civilization of the city of Bethshan, um, they find to the north a temple to the god, goddess Ashtara. And to the south, they find a temple to the god of Dagon. They also find evidence that lets them know just a few years later that city was leveled and destroyed by King David. So lots of archaeological evidence today. If you ever go to Israel, you need to go see Bethshan. These few tragic verses here remind us that Saul always prioritized his own honor. He didn't respond to God's grace in his life by pursuing the honor of God, but he pursued the honor of Saul. Saul wanted his honor so much that he was willing to neglect and go against God's way and God's plan. That really was the slippery slope that started dictating all of his bad choices and bad behavior. That was the slope that he started closing off his, his heart to God. And that's what made him resist the plans of God, resist the commands of God, resist the instruction of God, resist the future that God was planning through David. So we get to ask ourselves, how do we want to respond to God's gracious activity in our lives? We want to seek God's honor first, seek his honor more than our own. And we know that when we make God's honor our priority, not only will we value the commands of God, but our heart, which is the center of our desires, our heart will start longing for the plans of God. Remember, God continues shaping and forming our hearts. When we want his honor, we start wanting his way. And then we become a kind of person who's flexible and open. Even when God's plans emerge in your life in a way that's not what you expected. It makes us a person who is working with God and for God instead of a person who is opposing God. It makes us a person like Jesus, who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. 
That's the picture of God forming and reforming a heart. That's what he wants to turn your heart into like Jesus. And one of the ways we participate with him is put his honor first. Read with me verse 11 through 13. These really are the only kind of hopeful, honoring parts of this whole narrative here. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, and they went all night, and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there. And they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. That's a pretty quick summary of a pretty stunning military expedition. You know, if you remember, uh, way back in chapter 11, Saul's first military act, his first military victory, was to go into Jabesh Gilead, where his kinsmen were, and to lead all Israel in a mighty victory, protecting the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead against um, an opposing enemy army. And I think those memories are still alive in these men, and I think their memory makes them valiant instead of fearful here. And here's why this was such a valiant and brave military expedition. You have to remember now, everything they're traveling, the land they're traversing is all enemy-occupied at this point with no protection and no um, army for Israel. It's also nighttime, so of course everything is dark, but that also means people are tired and compromised. And recovering these bodies was a 15-mile trek, and let's not forget they also had to cross the Jordan River. So it was really quite an accomplishment for them, quite remarkable that they could recover those bodies, get them all the way back to Jabesh. We believe they were partially cremated when they got back, and Israelites did not typically cremate their dead, but most speculate that that was done to cover up the mutilation that had happened to their bodies. And so they believe it was a partial cremation to cover over the dishonor, and then what remained of those people was then buried in an honorable way. And then look at those very last few words. This is the summary of Saul's kingship. They fasted for seven days. What that's letting us know in a very succinct way is all Israel is in a state of mourning and grief. So I want you to imagine sackcloth and ashes and wailing in the dust and collapsing prostrate before God and not eating and crying and fasting. It's grief and it's mourning. God has used an enemy, a neighboring oppressor to discipline Saul and honestly to discipline all of Israel. And he's also using this enemy to call his disobedient children back into his relationship with him. The nation of Israel had put their trust in a man. Remember, God was leading them as their king but they wanted a man. They had looked at the outer appearance. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. And they'd put their trust in a man instead of trusting God who knows the heart. Saul, we are told from Chronicles, he died for his breach of faith. 
We've seen him over all these chapters just building walls in his heart, blocking God out. I want you to imagine a real heart right now whose arteries have been uh, consistently, increasingly clogged over years and years and years. A heart whose muscles have been so ill-used, they're now useless and they're atrophied. A heart with no energy and no vitality, it's a long, flat line. That's what Saul has done to his heart here. It's all been his doing. The tragic story of everything that's happening to Israel in the north, this happens simultaneously. Chronologically, it's happening at the exact same time that David is having a great victory down in the south. Everything we read and studied last week, it's happening at the same time. God sends Saul directly into the doomed battle while God pulls David out. In the north, it's all death and destruction and despair, but in the south, it's victory, it's spoils, it's rejoicing, it's honoring God. Why? Why the difference? Because David kept his heart open to God and Saul did not. David was willing to listen to wise counsel, to be teachable. David was willing to recognize his own foolishness and impulsivity and turn in a new direction. David was willing to call himself a sinner and want something better. David was willing to obey God and honor his plans even when it cost him a great deal. That's opening your whole heart. And here's what God does when we open our heart. He steps in and he keeps forming and shaping it. And that's why we see David become more obedient, more trustworthy. David's uh, tendency to kind of use dishonest language, it, we see less and less of that as he's growing and maturing because God is continuing to form his, his life and his heart. So what I learned from this is this transformation of our heart is a lifelong process. It's a journey. It's not a one and done, I'm saved, my heart is good to go right now. It's an ongoing process where we participate with God. It happens day after day, choice after choice, obedient decision after obedient decision. It's the exact same way for us as it was for David. God tells us that he can take our dead heart of stone and make it a soft heart of flesh. And he does that for us when we choose to put our faith and our trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's all grace. We don't do it ourselves and we don't earn it. But we aren't a finished product in that moment. God's not done with us. I think the reason he says he makes our heart soft and flexible is because he can keep molding a heart that is soft and flexible. And here's what he wants. He wants to mold the character of Jesus in each one of our hearts. He wants to be forming us to look like Jesus. And that's all God's activity too. He does the work and it's all his grace. But it's a grace that we must participate with. We must invite God in to do that work. I think that one of the ways that we do that, and I think David did this, was we have to be in the habit of examining our heart every day. That is one way we invite God to keep forming and shaping our heart. You know, our New Testament reality is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit forever. 
God will never have the Spirit depart from us, but we can still wall off our heart from God. We can do that. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can become deaf to his direction. We can become independent from his leading. And if we continue to do that, no, we never lose our salvation and we never lose the Holy Spirit. But we don't experience abundant life with Christ. We don't bear fruit. We don't bless the world. And everyone experiences the consequences for that. So our response to grace is not an expectation of sinless perfection, but it's a willingness to keep examining our hearts. It's a willingness to pray like David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any anxious way in me and lead me in the everlasting. So I want to close here just with some practical suggestions. How do we examine our heart? We're going to make this Monday morning relevant. How do we examine our heart? We can examine our heart by prayerfully reviewing our day with God every single day. And my opinion on this is you're not very likely to do it unless you make it a regular habit. So we'll call it a habit or a discipline, but you can have the discipline of examining your heart. This is a simple process. It's just a prayer where you ask God to review the day with you. I like to do this at night, um, and then I start with, I look at my calendar. I go through my calendar, and I look through my day with God, and I look for, God, where were you with me? Where were you working? around me and through me. And I thank God for that. And then I go through my day again and I say, God, where was I resisting you? And I think through the first meeting at nine o'clock and I think through the work at 10 o'clock and I think through the lunch conversation at noon, God, where was I resisting you? This is the process of searching your heart. And if you'll give it a few minutes, God will start showing you some things. He will reveal your heart to you. He'll show you where you resisted him. But you don't stop there. When God shows you a place you were resisting him, you name it, you confess it, you invite the Holy Spirit to reshape that part of your heart. So I'm going to honestly tell you my temptation when I do this examine my heart process each day. Um, I'm pretty quick to see the places where I did resist God. God is teaching me how to see those things. Um, maybe I didn't offer help when I had the opportunity to, or maybe I didn't use the most gracious words in a conversation. God will show me that. My tendency, my temptation is to stop with a behavior and just pay attention to the behavior. But what I need to do is ask God, what was happening in my heart that made me behave that way? Because remember, the heart is the thing that is that is dictating our behavior. And when I ask God that, he'll usually show me. Sometimes I'll see, well, I didn't offer help because I wanted to be in control of my day and my time and my schedule and my energy. And I have to say, God, I'm sorry I sinned by taking control of my life. I might see maybe I didn't offer the most gracious words because I want to elevate myself and build up my value and my worth. 
And I have to say, God, I'm sorry. I sinned by creating my own value and worth here. Maybe I see I didn't do the thing that God commanded because I was afraid. What would people think of me? And then I'm going to say, I'm sinning by seeking my own comfort and peace more than your honor. You see, one writer says God's goal is not people with Christ-like behavior. That's good, but God's goal is people with Christ-like character. So we don't want to stop with the behavior. We want to ask God to search our heart because then we're inviting him in. Only God can change our heart. What we want is divinely wrought character change. That's God's goal for us, and it starts in our hearts. The book of 1 Samuel ends pretty tragically with false gods honored, the God of Israel dishonored, the people of God defeated and despairing. But ladies, don't lose hope. 2 Samuel is coming. (laughs) 2 Samuel is coming. Let me just give you a sneak peek. This is from Acts 13. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Clearly, there is hope on the horizon. There's hope for Israel because God had planned all along to put King David on the throne. King David will not be perfect. Spoiler alert, there's going to be more sin in his life to come, but he's going to be a man who keeps opening his heart to God. He's going to be a man who keeps regularly examining his heart. He's going to be the man who prays that prayer, search me and know me. And because of that, his leadership will be a blessing to himself, to his family, and to the nation around him. And from David's lineage, from David's tribe, the great King Jesus will come into the world. There's also hope for all of us who follow Jesus. We have received the gracious forgiveness and salvation that God has offered us, and that means the Spirit of God will remain with us forever. Just like David, we won't be perfect. We're going to continue to mess up. There will be dark, shadowy parts of our hearts that need to be changed, but God, who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it if you cooperate with him. The work will be done in your hearts, ladies, if you let God do it. It's true, God wants your heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and your grace and your hope. And we thank you that you don't leave any of us where we are, but you work your power in us and you make us like your son, Lord. I pray that we can just lay our hearts before you each and every day. Make us women who have whole hearts for you, Lord. It's a big request, but you're a big God. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.